and I think it's a great reminder to us and, and anyone really that even in your small towns, you find your people. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Miles Calvert. This cheeky Canadian uses his wit and whimsy to make every demo as educational as it is fun. In his personal practice, major bodies of work has included massive installations of screen-printed pieces of toast and the idolization of British celebrity culture. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Johanna Mueller, artist in the upcoming 5x5 exhibition taking place during Print Santa Fe. For more on Print Santa Fe, you can go to www.printsantafe.org. We talk about drawing inspiration from the natural world, building a physically sustainable practice as a wood engraver, a bear burglar, and creating an artistic community outside of the big city. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to bring this podcast to bear with Johanna Mueller. Hi, Johanna. How's it going? I'm fantastic. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. Thank you for taking some time on a Friday morning to meet with me and being a little flexible with the timing. And I'm just really looking forward to having a chat about you and your work. I've I've known it for quite a few years and I'm really keen to learn more. Thanks. Yeah, I've been listening to the podcast for a while, so I'm also excited to be on it, which is awesome. Thank you. Yay. I always love that. It's always fun when people... Uh, have listened so they know a bit what to expect, which can make my job a little easier too, for sure. So given that, you probably know that I'm going to invite you to tell the world who you are, where you are, what you do. Yeah. So my name is Johanna Muller and I am currently in Greeley, Colorado, but I split my time between the eastern plains of Greeley and the foothills of Bellevue in Colorado. And I am a printmaker and entrepreneur, make my artwork and run our studio, which is called Wonderhand Studios in Greeley, which is a communal print shop. Wonderful. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Yeah, I grew up in Denver. I have always been like a creative kid and I loved crafts, but became like present early on that I really loved meticulous things. When I was a kid, (laughs) I would get the pack of beads from the store, like the seed beads. And they were, you could buy them in individual colors or you could get the mixed bag and the mixed bag was cheaper and more beads. So I would get the mixed bag 
and then divide out the colors using a needle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like as like a six-year-old, I was, I was totally nuts. So, and then my parents encouraged me to draw and they were great. And I also got really into entrepreneurship at an early age. So I was painting rocks and selling them in front of our house instead of lemonade and walking dogs. And then in high school started doing more, more things that I would make and then try and sell. And I was part of a couple like young entrepreneur fairs where I had my, my wares <laughs> for sale. And it, it, so I, I don't know, I started doing that at an early age and, but in my eighth grade yearbook, what I wanted to do for a living was own a luxury hotel chain. Oh my god! I, like, I, I had no idea you had to be Paris Hilton to be able to do that. But I just, I had big dreams of like entrepreneurship and, and they were all dashed when I went to college. <laughs> I found printmaking in college, loved it. And, and kind of went from there. I went to college at Metropolitan State College of Denver, which is now the Metropolitan University and had a wonderful professor mentor in EC Cunningham. But my journey into the printmaking room started in the drawing classroom where they were giving overrides to take print classes because they needed more enrollment Mm -hmm. and I needed more higher level classes. So I thought, well, great, this will be one step closer. And I thought I was going to be in the graphic design program since hotel and restaurant management was not my thing. And (laughs) I took the print class and it was really apparent really quickly that I loved it. I love the process, but just like so many other people, it was the, the community around the print shop that really drew me in and kept me there. And my mentor, who was one of the first people to actually tell me as a young person, like, you might have a future in this and you should keep mm. going with it. And he always kind of floated this line between criticism of the art and what you're doing and just that much praise to like keep your feet in the game. <laughs> yeah. Which was wanting so more. Valuable. Yeah. 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 I feel like without that type of encouragement, I very easily probably could have been a jeweler or a ceramicist or anything else that had that wonderful meticulousness to it that I knew I, I loved and enjoyed. But I found printmaking and I found the people. It's like all the cool kids were in the print shop and I had lots of different friends to Metro at the time. I think the average age of the student was like 27 years old. Oh, cool. And I was just out of college or out of high school, but my best friends was were like 40 and 60 and they were great. And I just, I really started blooming and learning a lot about life. So that was, I was really glad that I, I made the decision to be in the print shop. Yeah. And what a, wonderful experience to be able to be exposed to different generations of people. I think that I went to community college for two years before I went to my four-year university. And that was just so valuable to not be among kids who have pretty much the same story that I did. You know, Mm -hmm. like most of us were middle class, upper middle class kids, had parents who also had degrees, you know, once I was at the four-year university and, you know, very similar mindsets and backgrounds. And at the community college, I just remember we had 
like returning students. We had students who had recently immigrated. It was an amazing experience. And I think as you speak to one that really can open your eyes and give you a broader worldview. And I think appreciate the privilege of getting an education as well. Oh, it did. Yeah, that was huge. And I, I worked, I, I had a job at a gallery and then I also did faux finishing and mural painting with this woman inside of really big fancy houses. But I was still going to school and most of the people in my classes had jobs or second jobs or families or yeah. And so I think it really did instill a sense of work ethic. And and that was the, the thing too with the print shop. I feel like all hours of the day, there was someone in there working, whether there was a class or not. And it, yeah, definitely shows you kind of the the power of of what that space can do when you have access to it and, the, and such a privilege to be able to, to, to be there for sure. Yeah. And so did you know what printmaking was before going to college? Was it at all on your radar or was it just brand new walking into the shop? No, it was brand new, but it was kind of funny because I feel like there's like a certain breed of person mm. that's like super drawn to prints and printmaking and the graphic arts. And I was totally that person, but I had no idea what they were. And I remember walking down the halls of the school and they would put work in the cases for everybody to see as they do. And when the printmaking students had their work in the case, I would just like stand there and drool over them. And, you know, it was all these words that ended in graph, uh huh, graph, stereograph. Yeah. And, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's like really, I love it. And so I didn't even know like really what I was looking at. And then once I got in the shop and the semester started, I we dove in with monotype and then most of the rest of it was intaglio. And, and it was, I was finally like, oh, I'm doing it. Except yeah. my work was so horribly bad <laughs> for, for most of undergrad. I just really loved it. And that was the thing with my professor. He, he always had to challenge what I was doing, what I was making work about, and then also my technique. And, and I loved him because I really feel like he knew there was something inside this girl mm-hmm. <laughs> and, he, and he was trying to find it, but he also was such a great mentor because he had the, the wherewithal to say like, you need to, to try something else. And so I actually ended up going to Frogman's because I think he was just so done with me. Probably <laughs> it was like, go learn from someone else. But that was such a, a great lesson too to know that one person doesn't hold all the answers for you when you're in school. And so branching out, I went to Frogman's and I took a wood engraving class and that was changed my life of print for good. And then Frogman's actually is a workshop in Omaha. Most people, or it was in South Dakota and now it's in Omaha. And I think it just is now switching again, but it's an all print workshop in the Midwest and it's really a fantastic mecca and was a place where I started to meet a lot of people and try new things, but it changed my life multiple mm. times. And so that first time I uh, tried the wood engraving and came back and showed my professor and and he, he, he agreed with me that like, oh, something just clicked for you. Like, and it did my, the best way I could explain it, it was like being fluent in a language immediately mm. where like everything 
that I've been trying to do with intaglio. I was just struggling and saying the wrong words constantly. And lithography, my lithos would just end up black all the time. <laughs> I was a horrible lithographer. And and I tried linoleum and woodcut, but it just wasn't the same. Something just wasn't quite there. And so I went and took this class and came back with these little baby two by five and three by five prints. And my professor said, you just, you got to just keep doing it, but I don't really know that much about it. So you're going to have to really take the reins and like teach yourself more about this method. And so I actually went back to Fragments the next summer and took a class in letterpress, not really knowing the wood engraving had a letterpress element in it. And so I took the class in letterpress, but next door, Carla Hackenmiller was teaching a class on like fantastic plastics. And it was a survey of plastic materials that you could use for all sorts of different things. And this guy who was in my wood engraving class the year prior ran into the room and was like, oh my gosh, you got to try this plastic. It's called high impact polystyrene and you can engrave on it. And he gave me this little swatch of it. And I tried it. And I was like, oh, it's great. But like, how much does it cost? Because of course, as a student, like the wood and resin grave was (laughs) so prohibitively expensive that when you were making a block, I was like, I would take like weeks to plan my drawing and make sure everything was great because this material was so precious. And he was like, it's like a dollar for the the size block. And it was. So I got back to Denver and bought a four by eight foot sheet of this plastic. It was like 50 bucks at the time for that big of a sheet. And, and just started hacking it up and using it and having that as a student, being able to not have that uber preciousness again, like opened up my world as did the plastic. And then I, I ended up going to grad school after that. And I hated most of grad school. (laughs) I don't really like to talk about it, but it made me learn how to talk about my work, but I really pushed through with this material, lots of like happy accidents, started carving on both sides of it, started shaping my plates, and then got the graduate scholarship at Frogman's, went back and met my husband there. So that's my Frogman story of like all the different times it's changed my life. And still like, I've been back to teach a couple of times and it's always so magical and to know that other students are having those same experiences where they're really finding like their medium and it's just very exciting. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate with your story, these points and these really pivotal moments that you're speaking to that happen outside of a traditional academic setting that happened outside of the undergrad graduate school, that sort of thing, because as I'm sure you know, as as a print person, so many of our stories are so interwoven with really academic ivory tower kind of experiences, in part just because of accessibility to studios. You know, that's just how people get exposed to it. And I, I just really appreciate that in your story. It's happening at this other place. It's happening at Frogman's and it's, it's introducing you to your medium. It's introducing you to your husband. And that a more winding and diverse path through printmaking has more rewards as well as what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I think I took, I very much was cognizant of taking the alternative path in terms of being a non-academic. And I 
when I graduated from undergrad, it, like I said, I worked mm-hmm. as I was going through school. So I had this little chunk of change that I knew when I graduated that if I didn't buy a printing press, I wasn't going to make prints. Mm-hmm. And even going to grad school, I was like, I just had this forethought. So I tracked down this guy who was like a press broker. He collected various particular types of printing presses, but he'd buy entire shops to to get the one that he wanted. It's very these presses that they don't allow out of England anymore. They're so special. And so he bought this huge shop in Utah and he had a couple presses and I was looking for like a, a proof press. And I got my first press, which was a Vandercook proof press, which they're fairly rare. They don't have the self-inking rollers on them, mm. and but still a heavy press. And it lived in my parents' garage for years, but I eventually was able to make work on it. I'd make work on it whenever I came home through grad school. And because in, in the back of my head, I just knew that this way of me speaking to the world again, like finding your voice and your fluency in this artwork that was actually saying what you needed to communicate. Mm. I, I couldn't let that go. I couldn't just paint or I couldn't just draw. Cause I still like, it's just not my language. So I, I got my first printing press after grad school and from working and students are often like, well, how did you do it? And it's like, well, I don't know. I saved like $600 cause I was working part-time and <laughs> Mm-hmm. Still got lucky. I mean, my rent was cheap in Denver at the time, no longer, but yeah. I think there's a really great element of hard work, but I definitely had a lot of, like we were saying with even just being able to go to college is a huge privilege along the way. So, yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting in part of your story, hearing this really early affinity for small work like that is meticulousness that that image of you as a six-year-old separating out the beads is, is so powerful and so I guess I'm not surprised to hear that maybe kind of originally on the path you were drawn to intaglio you know because that's again very can be small yeah. and fiddly and then as you say though when you found wood engraving or relief engraving it really sort of lit you up in I'm just wondering if you know exactly kind of what that mechanism was. I mean, was it the working in reverse? Was it the tools? You know, it's such an interesting distinction because I think as someone who's interested in the small, fine work, it seems like intaglio and wood engraving, relief engraving could both scratch that itch. But for you, it was definitely the relief process, it sounds like. Yeah, I think my brain thinks in line Mm. and and the value scale that you get with the relief print where everything is black to start and then you're gradually making those textures and patterns happen and by taking out the the surface i loved intaglio i'm my fa- like i have some prints my favorite prints are intaglio a lot of them but i was just never that good at thinking in intaglio and i loved soft ground and the look of it. And it's something Mm -hmm. that I've always wanted to revisit like uh, at a residency or something to really put, immerse myself in it again and try it and see what's changed. But it was definitely the ability to make these little marks. But I think the relief style also has a graphic quality that just really spoke to me. And there's also with relief, 
you could work in intaglio forever, but relief, like when it's done, it's done. And I kind of liked that <laughs> where you have all these little square inches on your block. And once you're kind of done carving it, like you can't rework it that much. You, you can keep carving and it's just going to turn white yeah. or the color of the paper. But intaglio, you can burnish out and you can like to keep doing it. And I really like the finalness of the relief engraving as well. But I definitely my drawings are really loose and the way that they translate to engraving is so different because of the mark making of the tool that you can't get the same marks with a pen or a pencil or a brush. And, and yet like those, the, the mark of the tool is also what makes my work, my work, I think. And so that's also part of it. Yeah. That's such a, significant distinction I've never heard anyone say before is that there's that ability in intaglio to kind of probably drive yourself crazy of saying like, well, I could, maybe I can do this a little more precise, or maybe I can get that aqua tint just a little more perfect. And there's, I would definitely take seen through that lens, a huge comfort in the finality of of, (laughs) of doing relief where it's just like, it's not going to get any better. It's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, you just kind of have to call it. And and I like that about it. Not everyone probably does, but but for me it just works. I like finishing things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I I think with relief it it just worked and then and now I've been able to branch out and really use my blocks in so many different ways, which has been my new challenge. And is why I shape a lot of my mm-hmm. blocks and, I'm, and I carve on both sides of a lot of my blocks. So I get the symmetrical compositions that I like, but they also become just like these pieces of a puzzle or almost like part of a poem that you're then able to add to when they're placed with different blocks or printed in a different color, they totally change and morph. And depending on what they're talking to, or who they're next to, the mood of the piece can drastically change. And so I really also liked the ability that the blocks themselves give myself like a a visual library of, of pieces that I'm able to work with. And I'm also hyper aware that of my body and not, and not maybe being able to carve forever in my Mm -hmm. life. So having the ability to have this arsenal of imagery, imagery, that, that I can then make work about and, and using those pieces is huge and is part of my challenge too and kind of where where the relief engraving is taking me now. So Yeah, yeah. And that being aware of the finite time that we all have to do our craft I think is really powerful and really insightful to work that into your current practice because – printmaking, I mean, and a lot of art making, but a lot of printmaking is so physical and so kind of taxing. I have only ever done one print as an art historian, and it was just a, a linoleum cut. And I, when I was doing it, I was asking my husband, Tim, who's done tons of just large scale relief blocks, things that are 
six feet wide. He's just carved. He's carved and carved and carved. And so I'm asking these different questions and I'm saying, well, how do I get this texture? Or, you know, how do I know if my tool is sharp enough and this sort of thing? And then I eventually was like, how do I keep my back from hurting? And he was like, oh, (laughs) tell the rest of us when you figure that one out. (laughs) Yeah, it's really true. Like, I, what part of the reasons why I have such bad memories of grad school is because I got an inflamed tendon. My mm. tendon was hitting my my collarbone because of so much repetitive motion. I overworked myself preparing for a critique. And then we had actually Karen Koontz as a visiting artist. And I was like tapping out all her ink. And so it was the same like little baby shoulder motions. Mm. And I couldn't I couldn't carve for a year. My last year of grad school, I painted and did sculpture and other like stuff. So my thesis was a little more, it wasn't just prints. And it was terrifying. Mm. But I also started, I went to a very lucky because as a student, I had no way to heal myself. I took myself to George town medical in DC, which was like, it's huge medical center. And all they could tell me was, well, just don't do what you're doing. Yeah. Just take Advil or ibuprofen and like, just get over it basically. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like I'm getting a degree in this. Like I want to do this for the rest of my life. And then I, on a whim took a, <laughs> a little tag for a chiropractic study on creativity that they were they had around the the university campus and went to this chiropractor and you had to fill out a survey of like before and after your creative thoughts. But I walked in there and and the first thing they ask you in the chiropractic is, well, do you have any existing conditions that we need to be careful of? And I said, yeah, I've been having this shoulder issue and I I, I couldn't take my sh- shirt off mm-hmm. over my head like it was so painful every day, and. The chiropractic took one look at me and was like, oh, well, yeah, it's because your bone is resting, like your back is at a diagonal, basically. And so he just he took my shoulder and he like just like put it back in place. And it was like 98% better oh immediately. Gosh. But I also thought if I had never t- like taken the chance on this creativity study and seeing a chiropractic. And so it got me onto chiropractic and acupuncture and lots of alternative medicine. That is super helpful. If you work with your hands, if you work with your, your, your upper body muscles and yeah, it's so important. And I teach my students how to carve ergonomically and how to sit ergonomically is like the first thing we go over because you can kill your back and your neck in seconds (laughs) if you're not careful. So yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. But having had that so early on, I'm hyper aware of it. And it's just always sort of in my immediate is how to be better to my body so I can keep doing it as long as I can. But I know I won't be able to do it forever. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, yeah, I think that's just such an, an important story. And thanks for people who are just starting on their journey to hear because it's you've feel like I'm sure as as a young student or even someone who's starting out, like you just are so excited about what you're doing. You're not thinking about, can I do this in 20 years? You're just so focused in the present, which has its benefits too, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So when did animals start appearing in your work? You know, now they're 
animals inside of animals on top of animals. But was this a subject when you were in, in grad school? Was it a long-term thing or more recent? Yeah, I, I've always loved animals. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I was a kid, like I, I loved animals, but I loved tiny animals. Like I collected little glass animals and had stuffed animals. I was a bit of a tomboy, so I hated dolls. Mm-hmm. So like all my toys were animals. And I, uh, the irony was my parents, I was one of four siblings and my parents were like, there's no way any of you are having pets because we just can't know what. <laughs> so I had to like really, really fight to get an animal in the house as a pet. And so again, like I was such a weird kid at an early age, I was doing research on dogs to find one that like didn't shed, was good with kids. But like, <laughs> Because I, I really wanted a dog. Instead, I got a hamster, and that was such a letdown. And then finally, we got a family dog, and I, I saved up all my babysitting money. I was probably like 13 when we I was finally able to have a, a dog in the house. And and my parents ended up loving this dog. We found a great time to rescue a shelter, and it was like one of the only times I've seen my dad cry was when we had to put the dog down. It was really sad. So anyways, my parents came around. Love the dog. But in my work, I've I've always drawn animals of like when I was a kid, I did these animal mashups where I'd be like the head of a lion and the body of a zebra and the legs of a giraffe or whatever. And and then going forward though, I was also I was raised Roman Catholic and there were all these biblical animals. And then I was totally obsessed with like the Egyptian mm. mashup the gods and goddesses with the animal heads and the human bodies and started really finding like a lot of animal outlets in art history. And so in terms of like academically, when my art started changing, because for so long, and that was part of why I was making horrible work was because I was trying to draw humans or or do abstract. And I just was really bad at it because it wasn't real from my soul Mm -hmm. and working with animals was. And so in grad school, I really boiled down the essence of what I was trying to say, which came a lot from my own upbringing and history and looking at Western art and the biblical tradition and then juxtaposing that with native or Aboriginal or ancient societies. And, and people know it, it's in all the art history books, but how the Judeo-Christianity tradition just changed so many symbols. And a lot of the animals that were associated with goddess worship were turned into very evil animals in the Bible mm-hmm. just to like draw that line. <laughs> and so finding those similarities and differences and getting into some of the animal symbology, but then also looking at what the animal is actually doing in a biological scientific sense and how it relates to its own pack or species became really important in my work too. So there's a mix of all that going on where there's some personal narrative and symbolism and the juxtaposition of that very like rich icon tradition that we see with saints in in human form and then kind of figuring out ways of elevating the animal to make it as if it was the icon, but really preying on people's own experiences as well of what they might associate with that animal. Um, As I know, like a lot of people, 
like the wolf it can be a very negative form because it's an animal that eats cattle and we have it in all these stories where it is very detrimental and yet we have dogs from the wolf and they are mm-hmm. our closest companion and that whole morphing of the wolf to the dog has forever fascinated me and so a lot of that has showed up in my work as well but the way that we tell stories as humans involves a lot of animals and in those allegories and moral stories whether it was Aesop or or even George Orwell with Animal Farm Mm -hmm. um and, and then again, the symbols that are used in, in the Bible and associated with each of the gospels and like Christ is the lion and, or the unicorn, like it, there's all sorts of richness in there, but breaking it down and then separating it out to kind of, yeah, make people see it, but then also question it and then realize that we all have our stories and it's part of what makes us human, but also part of what makes us good on this earth, I think, when we are able to fight over so much and have war over so much, but these, everyone has their creation story. Everyone has these myths that make their tradition so rich. And when we are able to see that and honor it, it just makes for a really special human connection point because I think we need more to connect on and less to not connect on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That like using animal as allegory is, so universal as you're saying Uh, and I actually went into my master's in art history with a particular interest in animals and art and I came from a philosophy background so I didn't really realize that in our history you can't just get a degree in animals in art like it's really quite big that's a very (laughs) you can't it's a really big topic and so I ended up finding someone Junio who was is recently retired but was the foremost scholar in horses in 16th century prints and so I ended up being scholar of 16th century prints but I just am really connecting with what you're saying about animals and their presence as symbol and reflection of humans and the way that we tell stories through them is such a rich vein to mind. There's so much in there. As you said, it's, it's cross-cultural. It's it's through history. Even if you look at contemporary politics, like elephant and a donkey, right? Like we, yeah, we, exactly. we use them because we think that they represent through their physical and behavioral qualities something that we connect with. And it's just, it's a very powerful tool to reflect something about being a human. Yeah, I think so. And there is a wonderful spiritual presence that animals have because they are so present. Mm. They don't live in the past. They don't live in the future. They're like already sort of these in one way perfected beings, which as humans, we constantly compare things to ourselves as how smart they are (laughs) or like, or how, which is why dogs, dogs that we consider them on that smarter plane because we're able to communicate with them Mm -hmm. where really any animal is just like really good at being themselves and not perfect at being a fish or a bird or whatever. And so when we 
even in science, find those similarities of like, oh, well, a crow can play or a dog knows to sniff out cancer, which is important to us. Mm -hmm. It's like then they get stepped up on that scale of importantness when really everything has its place. And I think that that that's where the, the science is also pretty interesting and in finding those interrelations of where things fall with us as humans versus just how they exist in nature. But you're right. And my parents are both like philosopher theologians, mm -hmm. which is also where I think I'm yeah, had a, a lot of that in my periphery and in art history, like you're saying, it's like the animals show up, but it was because they were important too. Like we make art about what's important to us as humans. And so from those early cave paintings with the hunt and, and, and seeing the animals on the wall to again, pairing them with symbols throughout our history, animals have this importance. And in a world where we are going through so much habitat, there's definitely still a call to maintain and bring in some of that environmental, what am I trying to say? Environmental justification to, to let these animals have a part of our world because they, they are important to us. We just don't always know it, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> And in my work, I often have the animals inside of animals to illustrate that, like having the silhouette of a bear, like you'd see him sitting on the hillside, not something like no one's really going to approach a bear. You shouldn't. And and yet, like we have teddy bears, we we have these brother bear myths, we have all all of these bears in our stories. And so inside that bear might be other bears or other animals to kind of represent that what what we Im imbibe on the animal or project upon it is all of that rich history. And then there's their outer form, which again, is just like a big stinky bear in the mm -hmm. wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting balance between everything that we project on animals, the the nobility, the wisdom, the presence, and then also that reality that they smell bad and are dangerous and sometimes do things that we wouldn't consider honorable, like eating another bear's cubs <laughs> so they right. won't be yes. competition yeah. later on. And, and the complexity of them and how much they add to our human experience seems to not be as present as I would think it should be with a lot of people. I think, you know, that some, I, every once in a while I'll meet someone and I'll say something about animals cause I'm obsessed with them. And they'll be like, what really? Like, they're like, <laughs> oh, there's a difference between crocodiles and alligators. Like they just like, won't know something that like clearly shows that like, they just have never been super interested in animals. And I'm like, what do you do with your life? Like if you're not interested in our fellow beings that are the most interesting thing here in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, there's really something to say about being on an equal plane with them. We're mammals, they're mammals. Mm -hmm. Like it's, yeah, they have as much right to be here as we do. And so I think lately my, my work's also taken on a little bit more of that environmental feel and 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 working also I, I started carving a bunch of blocks with like really tropical plants in them 
and as kind of that symbol for injecting a false reality into our wildernesses and invasive plants, but also like when we tear down and just have bluegrass or whatever, that the animals, they don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're confusing them and messing with their habitats and and messing with their migrations. And it's really a hard time to be an animal, I think, in the wild right now. But but yeah, it, they're, but they're still out there. And that's been the lovely part about living in the foothills part of the time. We have bears. We had a bear actually break into our our house oh up there. <laughs> so talk about like how, you know. With like a balaclava and like a animal. shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He ate everything. Like, <laughs> were you everything. home? No, we were out. I was actually, I was at an art festival and my husband went up to like check on the house and he thought oh I'm just going to check in and like water the plants and then come back down because we have family in town and he got there and was like oh this isn't good (laughs) (laughs) I mean it yeah we had a pretty well stocked fridge and pantry and he ate everything except the coffee and a thing of garlic but like all the flour all the sugar 40 pounds of dog food let alone like a freezer full of meats and tofu and sauces, like everything that you could think of. And then there was was this, was it during like the first weekend in August? Oh, kind of during like the fattening season for the animal. Right. Yep. Totally. But they're so smart. Apparently this bear went all around the house. We have bear prints on every window in the house until he found the weakest one. But it was also the one where he could see the fridge. And so bears know that these big boxes have all the treats in them. And so he literally just pounded on the window until he broke it and then came in and ate everything in the house and left out the same window, thank God, because a lot of times they'll go out another (laughs) (laughs) Oh, But yeah, there was like a crystallized line of sugary drool to the door. And it looked like someone had poured out like 50 pounds of birdseed and then poured syrup over it because it was like all the dried stuff like rice, dried beans and quinoa were like all over the floor with broken glass because he just like tore through all our like glass safe pantry stuff. It took us three days to clean it up. Oh my God. <laughs> but we were like, but you're a bear. So we're going to have to forgive you. And then but there was a bear in the area. We, there were other houses like within a 10 mile radius that were also broken into. So we didn't feel that bad. But after that, we put up bear mats, which are pieces of plywood with roofing nails stuck through mm. them. Which act kind of like a bed of Legos as if, if you have ever stepped on Legos. Mm-hmm. You can't like, ah, ah gotta move. So anyways, they we now have the bear mats out from May through September-ish <laughs> or actually November. So yeah. I feel like I would, I don't know, I feel like I'd feel kind of honored if a bear broke into my house. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's cool because it is an experience that I love knowing that they exist still. And we saw two other bears, two different bears after the break-in, and we were able to like kind of chase them off. You make a lot of noise Mm -hmm. and hands and stuff, because really that uh, keeps them safer. Black bears? Oh, yeah, we have black bears, which again, like I need to read up on my bears because apparently like 
black bears and brown bears are the same species, maybe, yeah. or vice versa. Or I think it's um, something that like you can't. I remember this because I did I did a lot of bear reading before a long trip in Yellowstone, and yeah, and brilliant. and it's that you can't look at a bear. And be like, oh, you're brown, you're a grizzly. Oh, you're black, you're a black bear. And like, because you're supposed to act differently around them, you know, you're safe climbing a tree from a grizzly, but not a black bear, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So apparently it's it actually, that's really a misnomer to try and use the color of their fur as a way to identify them. You have to look at like their shape. And then someone said like, you need to look at like their claws. And I was like, do I though? Is that really like how I need to identify this bear is get close enough to see their claws? (laughs) Yeah. I believe in our foothills in Colorado, we have black bears, which are different than the grizzly bears of Yellowstone. They top out around 350 pounds, I think. That's still a lot Uh, of bear. A lot of bear. Uh, This one, we talked with the, the like forest warden guy because you're supposed to report them so that again, if, if, we were able to get them on camera or if there's evidence of fur left behind, they can know a little bit more about the bears so that they can relocate them. And so we talked with the warden guy and he thought that it was about a 250 to 300 pound, probably younger, like a juvenile ish two or three year old bear, mm. probably that that was our cul- culprit. But. <laughs> like a wanted poster. I'm imagining yeah. it with the way you describe it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, that's so, that's so wonderful. And yeah, I, I wish that I just, yeah, I really wish that people could connect their love for animals with environmental action. It's, it seems like a real disconnect. Again, during that, that trip in Yellowstone, I would, you'd see just these, these backups on the highways in Yellowstone of people just scrambling on top of each other to look at like a mom bear and her cubs, like really, really far away. And everyone's thrilled and everyone's like smiling and like, or like these like wolf spotting trips that you wake up at 5am for, and then you like burn down a bunch of forests. You know, like it's like, yeah. it's really, it really seems like a, a disconnect there. But yeah, I, I I do want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about the studio, the Wonderhand Studios. Oh, yeah. 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 My husband and I have had started kind of from that first press that I bought. I bought that when I was done with undergrad and just sort of always knew that if you have a press, you share it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way it happens and how you build community. And my husband was very much on the same page. So we were living in Fort Collins and we started to, he had an etching press and I had my Vandercook and, and then we just, we started collecting things and started getting more type for letterpress and all sorts of different equipment always with it in the back of our heads that we wanted to do some sort of a communal studio. And so, uh, of course, Colorado real estate exploded in that time. Mm -hmm. And as much as we would have loved to have done something in Fort Collins, we ended up moving to Greeley where we could still afford to buy a warehouse. And after my experience in Austin, I owned a gallery with a friend, but the rents just, they're so high Mm -hmm. in any great neighborhood and it became prohibitively expensive really 
quickly when you're trying to sell art. And so I knew that if we ever attempted anything again, we had to be able to own the building. And my husband and I are very do-it-yourselfers. We've rehabbed a couple houses that were the worst house on the block. And so we've been able to kind of finagle some of those purchases in real estate to make this warehouse happen. And so we bought the warehouse in Greeley. And so it's about, the print shop is about 1,500 square feet. And we have seven printing presses and three private artist studios. And so folks come in and either rent the studio space or they come in and as a print member with 24 hour access whenever they want, once they get checked out on the material. But we kind of had a, a slow open. We opened January of 2020. Oh, and then prompt- wow. <laughs> it was Congrats. really great that we could take that time to really reevaluate what we wanted Mm -hmm. in the kind of year and a half after during COVID times. And, but it was funny too, because out of the woodwork, like people just started finding us without really doing a ton of advertising or anything. It was just mostly word of mouth and it, which has been really great. And I think it's a great reminder to us and and anyone really that even in your small towns, you find your people. Mm. You don't have to be in a big city to make a splash. And so we have the studio and we actually just were in Oaxaca for Day of the Dead. And we're so inspired by some of the print shops down there and how they were doing this incredible outreach and and classes and just like spreading the ink and Mm. teaching people without the bells and whistles, like college level classes that we were kind of used to teaching. It was just like, here's your thing of wood and here's your tool and this is what you do and go for it. (laughs) And so we're going to start doing some relief classes this year. And we also are doing, we do some networking sessions. So we have a monthly meetup for artists and then a monthly meetup for a critique session or work in progress night. And those are all free. And, and then the relief class, like 30 bucks for a two and a half hour class where you just get to come and carve and then print a couple. And it's a great thing that people get into and they can try once or they can come back as many times as they want. But I think we're, because we have the space and we're very much into trying to find some equity and, and encouraging people to make art and be a part of the community as well, we are able to do that because we own the building and it's subsidized by another set of tenants in in the other part of it. So we're able to rent control our own space to keep it very economical for artists and hopefully for a long time that no one's going to be priced out on the, on the rent there. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. What you were saying about how even in smaller communities, you can find your people and you can make a splash. I really love that because I think in some ways it's almost easier to make a splash in a smaller community. And I think a lot of the narrative and the arts is, well, you need to be in Austin, Chicago, LA, New York to make something happen. But my experience in smaller communities, even in something like Santa Fe, which is quite an artsy town, is the enthusiasm that you get when you try to build something is so much higher because it is something that people can see are directly adding something to the community and you do get that support. And so I, I always hope that people know that your people are going to find you, your community will find you and 
just go build what you want to see where it's possible to build it because it's not really easy with the insanity of real estate in the US now to do that in in maybe what are considered more traditional hubs of arts and art making. Yeah, it's really true. And we have people that travel from all over the front range to use our space too, which is crazy the way that it's structured. If I'm there, you can do drop-in hours and schedule that with me. And we have a waiver release for people to sign, but a lot of other places, if you're not a part of that community, you can't just come for an afternoon and print, but you can <laughs> with great. us. So yeah, it's a little different model. So a lot of people do their carving work at their kitchen table or whatever they make their work, and then they'll come and, and print it. And we mostly specialize in relief. And then we have a handful of letterpress type. We do have a litho press, but it's mostly used for monotype and plate litho. We don't have um, access for stone at the moment. And then we're getting some silkscreen set up. But so it's a lot of people who are, yeah, doing their carving at home. And then they come in when they need a good press to use and rent a little bit of time. But yeah, I think those experiences for myself and my husband when we were really, you're a student and you don't really know you're poor, but you are because <laughs> everything is a hurdle when it costs money. So to have a couple really inexpensive opportunities and or free for people was just really important for us to be able to give back. Uh, I no longer teach at the college level, university level. I did that on and off and these teaching positions kind of fell in my lap. I got really lucky with some of them, but I just absolutely was not into mm. teaching. I've always been much more on the entrepreneurial side. So be able to give back in that way instead of at the college university level. It's been really great. And we do teach, I teach workshops out of this space and then travel to teach workshops elsewhere too. So I still have some opportunity there. Very cool. I love that the entrepreneurial young Johanna is fulfilling the dream like while marrying that to arts because I think one of the things that people don't get told is that if you're going to be a working artist you have to be an entrepreneur too you know you have to know about profit and loss and self-promotion and investments and returns on investment and all of that kind of stuff it's a weird thing but it's just you are a small business owner and you are the business and you have to figure out how to make it all work yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I really love having those conversations with young artists on like taxes. Yeah. Like, how do I pay my taxes? And yeah, and profit and loss and what can I write off and how to price your work. And my my full-time job is being a studio artist and then finding venues to show and sell my work. I make a living off of the sale of my work and I'm lucky to be able to do that. I do that in lots of different ways, but having the studio is just sort of a secondary thing right now. It's not, it was never made to be a moneymaker, which is a really freeing thing when you can do that. And I'm really lucky to be able to do that, but you're right. Being a full-time artist, it is truly a full-time job. And unless you treat it like that, it's really hard to reap the success and the rewards. I always had this saying of like, 
I had to put my whole ass in because like <laughs> if I half ass anything, I wasn't going to make it. So my whole butt is in making art now. And it's not half in adjuncting or teaching or half in this or that. It's really all there. And yeah, which which is pretty great because it took a lot of years and a lot of U-turns and a lot of false starts to get there. But it's definitely, yeah, come around to making constantly trying to make better work and make work that connects with people and make work that's, again, a reflection of my soul and what I think I have to say to the world, mm. which is, yeah, hopefully hopefully valuable. And, and it's hard. I've always had a moral dilemma with being an artist and not like a social worker or mm-hmm. a doctor or somebody who like you'd think would make an effort <laughs> or, or make a difference on the in the world. But being an artist, I feel like I've had plenty of shows where people literally break down and cry mm-hmm. in front of my work. And it's always such a compliment because it's you're moving them in a way that they're now connecting with the work and having this experience. And I remember the first time I cried in front of a piece of art and, oh my gosh, it's like, it's, if you haven't cried in front of a piece of work, mm-hmm. you really need to start seeing more art. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> But it's great. So I I feel like I've come to terms with actually saying I'm an artist and I make a living on my art and and that yeah, I I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing on the earth and which is being an artist entrepreneur and and hopefully making a difference in whatever ways I can. So That's beautiful. Well, but before we close, I'd love to just take a a brief moment because we've managed to talk our way through time way, way quicker than I anticipated. But you can get me talking on animals and art anytime. (laughs) But that what what sort of brought us together here today is that you've got pieces in the inaugural Prince Santa Fe 5x5 exhibition, which is five artists, five pieces. It's going to be showing at the Form and Concept Gallery here in Santa Fe. And Maybe just give you the floor a little bit to talk about the work that's going to be in the show and, you know, why you picked the pieces that you did. Yeah, I am super excited. I've always loved Santa Fe. And so to have work there, especially for a print celebration is awesome. Thank you. And but the work in the show is a lot larger than what I'm kind of used to working with, but I am using images of a lot of birds in the work and there are multiple plates and they're each carved on both sides. So I, I, again, love the like symmetricality that they give, but the birds were part of my COVID year that came out of wanting to have freedom and wanting to just like be able to fly. It was like, you're in these cages of house, like bird cage and wanting to be able to break out and just fly and go visit friends or go do things and see things, but also a sort of chaoticness when we were able to finally get out of the the world. It was just like this totally different place. And so I have a couple of pieces. There's a diptych called falling apart and then it's in two different colors. So it's falling apart in red and orange and then falling apart in turquoise and gold and thinking about, how much change there's been 
in my lifetime, both with the environment and the and the political atmosphere. And there are things you, you can't say anymore. And I'm happy for a lot for so many of those changes. But it all it just it leads to this other sense of of chaoticness and polarization. And so in those pieces there are birds flying about, but then there's a very deconstructed landscape as a symbol for sort of this floating world, unlike anything that's come before, that's really just a cacophony of images put together that might not go together. There's jungle and cacti and other things in these weird environments with animals that also like wouldn't necessarily be next to those other animals. And so as a symbol for that disconnect, and then the birds kind of are trying to figure out what's what's happening, just like I envisioned wanting to get out of my space, being a bird and flying away, but then also kind of that, what do you see when you're flying above? And it's not all about you and finding the freedom. It's about sort of coming to terms with how the world around you is becoming different both environmentally and politically and all these other things, and then how to deal with that. And there's a few other pieces that also sort of take that turn with the environmental bit, because living in Colorado, we have had multiple summers where you can't go outside. It's Mm -hmm. so smoky from the wildfires. And I know folks who live in California have experienced the same thing in Oregon. And we feel like lucky every year that we don't have massive fires. The back of our property in Bellevue is is totally burned. Before we bought it, there was a huge fire that came through there. So we have burned forests behind us and it's always just a striking reality. So the environment and the view of nature here is changing drastically. There are areas where it was beautiful hiking trails a few years ago and now there are burn scars. Mm-hmm. And So I found a bunch of topographical maps and I've been collaging on top of them and printing on top of them with animals that are native and then also adding sort of that tropical landscape as the reference to the change that's happening and seeing the maps. And a lot of them are kind of older, like 25 or 30 year old maps. And so even in that time, there's been changes, there's been roads built, there's been houses developed, but there's also been floods and fires. And so again, in my own personal world, it's coming to to terms with my environment and how fast it's changing and how there's still these stories and very human elements that are in them the one of the pieces has my fox in it, which is sort of my reminder to be present. He has a raven in his heart zone, sort of that symbol to keep connected with the powers that are bigger than us and and yet stay rooted. So he has these little shoots of, of corn coming down his legs into his paws. And that for as much change and as much craziness and as much as we all maybe want to get out and protest or become an environmental warrior, like I still feel like I need to make art and making art about these things. And again, what I was saying before of really feeling like that's, that's my place and that somebody, 
I mean, all of us have something to be said. And even though a lot of people see my work and they might not think immediately that it's political or environmental, I think whatever you're making work about, you're interpreting the things around you. And I definitely am still processing many things that have happened and are happening in the news cycle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so hopefully there's lots of different layers and ways to see the work. I always think it's fun for people to be brought to the work, kind of bring them halfway with the symbols and the imagery and their impression of the animal or the mark making. And then I, I sort of let them off the leash the, the last half of it where they're still open to interpretation, but hopefully the mood and the gravity of the, of the piece comes through. So. Beautiful. That's lovely. Well, and then where can people find you? Follow you, see your work, all of that good stuff. I am on Instagram. I'm at Johanna Muller Prince on Instagram. And then I have a website where I've got my process and work for sale and archives of all my old images. And that is Johanna Muller Prince.com. And that's it. I don't do a lot of other social media. I think media that's anymore. all you need, honestly. I think that. that... Instagram and a website is enough to keep up with. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's really been wonderful talking with you. I feel like we could do a whole podcast series about animals and art together. I like really had to pull myself back from that train of talk because I was like, oh, I've got other questions. But yeah, I thank you for the, the work that you do. And I'm excited to see your work in Santa Fe in just a few weeks now, really. April will be here before we know it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, You can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Sam Davidson, director and owner of Davidson Galleries in Seattle, Washington for nearly five decades. Davidson Galleries houses 18,000 works on paper dating back to the 15th century and an extensive collection of contemporary prints. The name Davidson Galleries might be familiar to dedicated listeners as it often comes up as the very first place I worked in contemporary printmaking. We talk about Sam's early days driving around the United States selling prints on the road, selling work which spanned centuries, highlights from the last 50 years, and what he's going to do next. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.